On the record. On News Talk. With Penergy. Supplying energy with insight to forward thinking Irish businesses. Not everyone is quite so pleased with the results of the US election as many people are in this part of the world. You might have seen Sammy Wilson, the DUP MP. Uh, He was tweeting during the week that Joe Biden is a parrot for Irish nationalism and for their falsehoods regarding the Belfast Agreement. And a separate MP, a Tory backbencher, highlighted what he called Biden's Irish Republican sympathies and ignorant comments on Brexit. But it's not the first time in the long history of now 46 US presidents that a man in office has caused a little bit of trepidation and maybe outright right fear on our neighbouring island and indeed from Washington to Woodrow Wilson London's view of what Washington means for Ireland has been long documented and Donald Fallon has been doing some digging and here to tell us all about it Donald good afternoon how are you keeping what, what, a, what a long week that was Gavin yeah I, I, I know I've said it earlier already in the show but I genuinely do feel like when I close my eyelids I see the key race alert thing <laughs> go, going across it's been haunting my sleep uh, and that, that little sound bed I'll be delighted when it's a, all of a part of our collective histories um, the 45th presidency the one that's wrapping up in about two months' time. Is it fair to say it was a time of, of relatively minimal interaction with Ireland? I, I think it's probably fair to say, and, and historians will say, that American interest in Ireland you know, was under, under Donald J. Trump probably at something of, of an all-time low. And I mean, listeners might, might not be aware of this, but for the gust of two years, we didn't even have an American ambassador to Ireland. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin O'Malley was removed from his position in January 2017. And then, believe it or not, it was the closing weeks of, of 2018 before Edward Crawford was, was appointed. So, you know, this very special political relationship, which is wrapped up in migration and so many other things, was, was kind of allowed to fall, fall apart for a period. And significantly, Trump also broke one very important tradition of, of recent U.S. presidents, which was a visit to Northern Ireland or, or to Dublin. So, you know, he made it no further than, than a Clare golf course, which, you know, he conveniently happened, happened to own. Mm. Uh, it's difficult to imagine things now. Uh, being the same under Joe Biden. So certainly the 45th presidency of the United States, I think minimal interaction. Uh, well, I mean, of course, the, the ritual of the White House on St. Patrick's Day, that continued. But the closeness of the relationship, I think, was was definitely lost. Yeah, I always thought that the very fact that Leo Varadkar was expected to traipse down to Dune Beg to meet him rather than the, the visiting president <laughs> doing the courtesy of at least going to Dublin to try and, and, and visit him on his own turf, even if there were, you know, logistical or security, uh, you know, upsides to, to doing it in clear, just always struck me uh, mm. as a little bit jarring. Uh, but we're talking today about uh, some of the UK's nervousness about American presidents. And already there are some whisperings on the neighbouring island around what Joe Biden will mean. Yeah, very curious tweet on Biden, you know, and they're emanating kind of primarily from the what we might call the undiplomatic backbenches of the Tory party. And I suppose sometimes if, if, if there's an MP in the House of Commons and you've heard nothing about them and you don't know their name, there's, there's sometimes a reason for that. You know, and that, that's <laughs> definitely true in the, in the case of, of the Tory party. I mean, it's very kind of old school right wing stuff that's being, that's being said. But it's a reminder, I think, that, that Washington is kind of regarded by some in Britain as a kind of unwanted voice of interference uh, in Anglo-Irish politics. Joe Biden is not only Irish-American, you know, he's a self-declared Irish Catholic uh, whatever that means. I don't know what separates an Irish Catholic from, from a Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. He's an Irish Catholic. And that in itself is historically significant. I mean, in that mould, he follows only one, John F. Kennedy. Yeah. So, you know, Ireland's bloodline to the White House is very, very significant. But a lot of it hails from Protestant Ulster. You know, and you find this great mural just off the Shankill Road in Belfast that lists the great Protestant Ulster presidents of the United States. Biden is something else entirely. You know, this is, mm. at his age, I think probably the last of the Irish-American Catholic diaspora, if you want to call it that, in politics with such a strong interest and a kind of direct connection to 
the island of Ireland. Yeah, you've pulled out one thing which uh, even struck me as a, a little bit of a surprise because we know that Joe Biden doesn't wear his uh, nationality all that quietly. He does sort of pr- put it pretty proudly on his sleeve. But he was asked a couple of years ago to list his political hero and you might think that he might, out of a sense of almost American <coughs> obligation, that he might have said George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. That's not who he said his hero was. Uh, amazingly, the, the Irish Times Washington correspondent in the 1980s was, was Sean Cronin, who lived kind of several lives in one. And I said on Twitter last night that he's awaiting his biographer and maybe maybe some listener will take up that task. But Sean Cronin, former IRA chief of staff, somehow becomes the Irish Times Washington correspondent. You have to wonder what the FBI thought of that. <laughs> but Cronin managed to interview Biden in 85 and he asked him to name a political hero. And maybe Biden was playing to the gallery. You know, this was the Irish Times. Yeah. But he said, Wolf Tone is the embodiment of some of the things that I think are noblest of all. He was a Protestant who formed the United Irishman. He had nothing to gain on the face of it, but he sought to relieve the oppression of the Catholics caused by the penal law. I mean, the penal laws, this is a level of detail, you yeah, know. Yeah. He gave his life for the principle of civil rights for all people. I view him as an honourable figure, obviously passionate, which I admire. And he had the ability to make his own comfort secondary to the greater good. So that's that's a it's remarkable That, that Wolf uh, Tone would be the one. Now, you're right, mate. maybe he was like playing to the gallery and he knew exactly who the audience would be. But the fact that even someone of his position was educated enough to know about Wolf Tone and the role that he played Played, even still is remarkable, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, Br- British on ease, I imagine, you know, they, these things have been dug up in, in, in recent days by, by newspapers on, on the neighbouring island. But, you know, British on ease with US presidents on the Irish question, sometimes it's been warranted more often, more often not. So today we'll go through some of them. Woodrow Wilson, I think, ultimately proved more faithful to the British than they probably probably uh, anticipated. But, of course, this connection goes right back to the earliest days. Mm. Uh, but we go further back than Woodrow Wilson. We go right to the man who got it all going. It was George Washington himself who was the beginning of some yeah. of Britain's unease about what America would mean for Ireland. Biden's admiration for, for Wolf Tone is there on the record. But, I mean, Wolf, uh, Washington is a central kind of inspiration on Tone's own political thinking. And Tone, brilliantly, when, he, when he's put on trial at his, at his court martial, he has this lovely line. He says, success is everything in this world. Washington succeeded. I have failed. Do, do your worst. Well, Washington took a really, really keen interest in, in Ireland and what was happening here. And the British, of course, took a keen interest in, in, in the Irish dimension of, of, of what was happening in the States. There's a lovely line in the British Parliament from, from Lord Mountjoy. He says, America was lost through the actions of our Irish immigrants. But ultimately, you know, the, the British fear that Washington would, you know, in some way impact on Irish politics was totally uh, unfounded. The, the founding fathers of the U.S. were kind of encouraged by Tom Paine, uh, who was an honorary member of the United Irishman, believe it or not, mm. to invade Ireland. But Washington and those around him, they never really took it all that seriously. And I think, you know, America ultimately in, in its in its early days, its policy was a primarily defensive one. You know, they'd established the American Republic and they were going to defend it, but they weren't going to go on the offensive. By comparison to the French, you know, who were who were willing to put guns into basically anyone's hands. Mm. So, I mean, the toast of the United Irishman became made the tricolored flag of France float over the Tower of London, which is remarkable. Wow. They had full faith that if there was an international ally, it would be France and not America. But from the very beginning, I mean, the diplomats, the the, the bureaucracy, state intelligence in, in, in London, always looking towards Washington, the, the city, not the man, and asking, you know, what impact will they have on, on, on our body politic? Yeah, that, that defensive approach that you mentioned, I think if anyone has seen the, the musical Hamilton and they talk about whether they want to, you know, go back and try and, and help out the French themselves and they take this kind of hands-off approach and everyone is very handering and going, you know, what is the point of our country if not to spread liberty? But they're like, well, hang on, we, we haven't totally got hold of liberty over here, so let's just, just get our own houses in order first. Exactly. Do you, do you spread liberty or do you defend liberty? And as far as Washington was concerned, the job 
but the US was to protect itself. Uh, there is another US president, Andrew Johnson, who is perhaps better remembered by a lot of people who you know are, are good on their, their table quiz trivia. He's remembered as the first president, I think, to be impeached. Uh, but he's largely overlooked, but he was also perhaps maybe put in the toughest spot of any president when it came to Ireland. I, I think it's definitely fair to say that the, the American president who found himself in the most significant kind of diplomatic hole with Britain on the Irish question was was Johnson. And he's a remarkable character. I mean, he's a Democrat. He runs on a unity ticket with Lincoln as VP. He's mm. in office at the time Lincoln's uh, assassinated. And even though he was Southern, he kind of remained firmly with the Union, which was which was unusual. But, you know, on different kind of separatists, Irish separatists, his views were kind of unclear to the British. And, and London watched this guy with, with a lot of interest. But I think one of the great misfortunes of poor President Johnson was that his, his presidency, 1865 to 1869, coincides exactly with, with the emergence of the Fenians in America. You know, well-organized secret revolutionary society. Well, not the greatest secret society in history because they, they ran an office on Broadway with green flag flying <laughs> over. They, they, were, they, were meant, they were meant to be a secret society anyway, on both sides of the Atlantic. So, you know, Britain was very, very curious to watch how this kind of revolutionary conspiracy was going to going to develop uh, in, in, in America. And they were kind of taken by surprise then in the 1860s when, you know, Fenian veterans of the American Civil War move across the border and invade Canada. Back then, that was called British North America. But the oh, curious okay. plan was to seize territory in British North America or Canada and basically bargain with the British states. So, you know, we've taken these towns and we'll, we'll, we'll bargain for soil. Uh, in Ireland, a very, very strange situation. And the American president finds himself with this kind of crisis in, in, in US politics on his desk. Yeah, I, I love that uh, that notion of a kind of a land swap that would just, uh, you know, we'll take this. It reminds me of like when I was in secondary school and when I was a first year, we used to play an awful lot of handball with tennis balls that we'd like, we'd, we'd bat them against the side of a school wall. And it would often be the thing that like some of the older kids would run along and they'd steal the ball. And then because if, if you're in first year and then someone in Leavenstone comes along and steals your tennis ball, that's it, you're goosed. I remember this culture emerging that the way to get out of it would be to immediately offer to buy your own tennis ball back on the spot. And it, it reminds me an awful lot of this idea of these Irishmen going in to steal a bit of Canada and then try and do a, a land bargaining back. Uh, amazingly, though, as you said, well, probably not all that amazing because of the, the office that they had on Broadway. The president did manage to get briefed on what the Fenians were planning. But what was maybe more amazing was that he didn't really stand in their way. Yeah, President Johnson was, I mean, his biographer has proven this, briefed on this invasion in the White House before it happened. There, there were whispers that this was coming and he wouldn't really commit to much to paper. But he did say that America would, quote, acknowledge accomplished facts. And, you know, in other words, if the Fenians went over the border and succeeded, that the United States wasn't going to stand uh, in their way. And that invasion today, is it's kind of laughed at, you know, it's regarded as Ireland's only kind of colonial exploit, the only time we've invaded uh, another country, mm. so to speak. <laughs> but in London, they were terrified at this kind of indifference, you know, from, from Washington. And apparently the marching song that they sang as, as they made their way from New York State towards Canada was, we are the Fenian Brotherhood, we're skilled in the art of war, and we're going to fight for Ireland, the land that we adore. Many battles we have won, along with the boys in blue, and we're off to capture Canada because we've nothing else to do. <laughs> in fairness, actually, the, the standoffish approach from from uh, from the U.S. administration is bizarre, and I like if you only imagine that in 2020, where some other country picks a fight with Britain and then decides to go off and invade some British colony that's next door, and for them just to turn a blind <laughs> eye and go, "Yeah, Grant, yeah, not our problem." Like it, it's it's mad to think how much things have moved on in the 150 years since. Um, you mentioned Woodrow Wilson; uh, he was maybe the American president that London were most afraid of, but he didn't let them down. Yeah, I mean, people in London expected him to, you know, because Woodrow Wilson was kind of heralded in, in, in this country. The newspapers in Ireland the day after the armistice, the end of World War, because remember, Sunday is, is next week. Mm -hmm. It's going to creep up on us 
heralded him as the, the people's peacemaker. And even when the war ends, there's these accounts of, you know, the American stars and stripes flying on, on the Falls Road in, in West Belfast. You know, people had full faith that Wilson, after the war, was, was, was going to do his bit for Ireland. Mm-hmm. His 14 points, you know, the basis for peace in Europe. People hoped here that they could be utilised in, kind of, in kind of pursuit of Irish independence, the freedom of small nations. And Wilson, in his 14 points, you know, it, it talks about the right of every peace-loving nation to live its own life and determine its own institutions. And many people in Ireland said, well, that could apply to us. And many people in London worried, oh, God, you know, will the Irish think that could apply to them? And more importantly, I think the fear in, in, in Westminster was, does Wilson think that that applies to the Irish? But ultimately, uh, I don't think he did. And, and don't forget, of course, this is the time as well, and we've talked about it in recent weeks on this lot, about how Eamon de Valera was off on his American tour and he was trying to rally new worldwide recognition and fundraise for this new nascent Irish state. And you'd presume that as a self-styled president of Ireland, he went over to try and pally down with the president of the United States. But amazingly, Wilson managed to, to keep him at arm's length for all that time. I don't know how they did it. The, the Wilson administration just danced around Ireland, you know, and the, when the Paris peace conference happens, Sinn Féin send representatives to Paris. They want to get down to the table and, and they're basically stonewalled by the Americans who are in a very close kind of political union with Britain uh, after the war. And Wilson wants to know what's happening in Ireland. He sends uh, George Creel, who was this kind of very important investigative journalist to Ireland to get a sense of it. But ultimately, the line that Wilson takes is that that's an internal British political issue and it's nothing to do with us. So, you know, so much for the, for the freedom of small nations. Mm. But when de Valera is on this kind of marathon speaking tour of, of America, I mean, de Valera goes everywhere. Fenway Park, Madison Square Gardens. He lays a wreath on the grave of Ben Franklin. He goes to the Washington Memorial. He actually touches the, the Liberty Bell. I mean, they let Dev touch the Liberty Bell. And the Wilson administration kind of watched this guy as he makes his way around America, but they make it very, very clear that he will not be sitting down at the table with Wilson because that would kind of give a give a legitimacy, if you will, to de Valera. So even as kind of Irish America was mobilising and even protesting at the gates of the White House, it didn't happen. You know, and the president that London, I think, feared would be the great undoing here. Ultimately, Wilson probably proved Britain's best friend when it came to the Irish question. Yeah, fun- funnily enough, as it turned out. Uh, moving towards uh, the present time, the names in, in more recent times are obviously familiar. We've had Clinton and Kennedy, and then there have been people involved in the last administration. You've had certain Bannons, you've had certain Guilfoyles, uh, who I've seen become a meme again in the last couple of days. Uh, do you think we're likely then to see a kind of a return to the old closeness in the coming years? We've had Mulvanies mispronouncing their names. <laughs> yes, we <laughs> have. <laughs> we've, had, we've had everything. But of course, we know the story of Kennedy, of Clinton. The, the second half of the 20th century is more familiar territory. But Irish America does remain today. But I think it's worth saying it's not the political titan that, that it once mm. was. And actually, first and second generation Irish blood is now very rare in America. I can only think of the, the Boyles. Yes. Uh, Brenda Boyles the is the only one with an Irish-born parent, I think, knocking around anymore. And all the rest have now been kind of diluted into the, the American populace at large. And they may not sound it, but by God, they certainly look Irish, the Boyles. But it is significant that that someone who so strongly identifies with the island of Ireland is in the position that Biden is now. This is a crucial moment, of course, in, in, in the peace process and Brexit. Mm. But I think kind of not, not for the first time, Sammy Wilson's fears, they, they might be a little bit exaggerated. But definitely, I think we can expect more interest. In, there can't be less interest in Ireland. That's the real point here. Yeah. There can't be less interest than there was in the last four years. So there certainly have to be more interest 
in Ireland, you know, uh, from Washington for the, for the next one. Your homework for next week is to figure out which county gets a better claim on him. Is it Mayo or is it Louth? Because I know all the people <laughs> from Carlingford are absolutely insistent that they get their rightful claim to him. But I didn't see him, you know, trying to venture over to the, uh, to try over to, to Louth when he was here in 2016. Maybe they could rename one of the M1, uh, you know, service plazas after him. They, they, if, they could both have a Joe Biden plaza. Yeah, knows? well, if, if everyone gets a plaza these days, you could stick the one just outside Castle Bellingham. You could just name that one after him and everything would be grand. Uh, Donald Fallon, as ever, thanks so much for, for guiding us through that. Donald Fallon, historian, the author of the Come Here To Me books and the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast, which you'll find online. 